Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway, and in these podcasts we're examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers that we do have, and what we could and would do with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved, and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland, because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with the Professor of International Relations at St Andrews University, Karen Gentry. Karen is about to become Faculty Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Arts, Design and Social Sciences at the University of Northumbria. Her interest in feminist foreign policy stems from her work on theology, particularly as it pertains to hopeful practices. So, Karen, thanks for joining us today on the Scotland's Choice podcast. No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Karen, um, obviously you specialise in feminist foreign policy. What is that and which countries have already adopted one? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I think feminist foreign policy is actually in a moment of change. It was first really adopted by Sweden um, in the mid-2010s. And it, as a beginning, focused mainly on women's rights, representation, and then what was called reallocation and making sure that women had um, equitable distribution to resources. And um, so Sweden's very much focused their their feminist foreign policy on women's kind of um, the word just escaped me, but uh, <laughs> women's status uh, kind of globally, and that's received um, some pushback actually from feminists who would like to see a more broader and expansive kind of vision for the term um, and for for what the set of policies could be. And what it, what feminists like myself would like to see is really a significant shift in how we think about states handle their foreign policy. And so instead of maybe being invested in um, economic competition, they think about collaboration. Instead of thinking about being isolationist, right, and closing down borders, how can we be more cosmopolitan? How can we be more supportive of refugees, migrants, asylum seekers. Um, and you know, and that also then requires, a cosmopolitan vision requires a global vision of engagement with international organizations. And there's um, a, a real desire to also de-emphasize military security and instead to emphasize what is called human security, where we put um, human-centered approaches first, ones that, um, you know, look maybe more at the pan- at the pandemic and why mm. that emerged, ones that look at climate change and climate justice and how we can better address that. Um, and all of those, of course, call for collaboration and a willingness to work with other governments, states, and, and key allies. Okay, well, well, talk us through this. How does that work for boys and men? And, and is it helpful to you know, collapse the word gender to being something that just refers to women and girls? It's not helpful um, to just collapse the term to women and girls. So 
Gender really refers to the social construction of how we understand what is masculine and what is feminine, and then the expectations that we place on individuals, right? So that men always live up to masculine um, presuppositions or normative assumptions, and women always live up to the feminine normative assumptions. And that can be really harmful, right? Not everyone identifies so closely with those um, those expectations. And so then to say that, um, it's, I mean, one, it's not helpful to think that feminism is only concerned with women. Feminism is not. Feminism is concerned with alleviating um, and disrupting power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And gender can harm both men and women. I mean, currently, I would say that we live in a patriarchal society. More men um, have access to power than women, but we also know that not all men have access to power. Mm-hmm. And we know that some women have a lot of access to power. And instead, what feminism wants to do is is see a redistribution of, of power and of resources so that more people um, engage with that power and resources and benefit from those power and resources. And thereby, we're floating all boats, not just some boats. Right. So uh, foreign policies uh, of nations often fail to be inclusive. Is that something that you you find is common? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I do think, you know, if we think about foreign policy 100 years ago, it revolved very much around some colonial dynamics still, right? And seeing Northern European, um, North American countries continue with colonial and imperial practices. That's those are harmful practices. Um, that those are power dynamics. Um, and foreign policies and statecraft has tended to revolve around um, military policy. It's tended to revolve around competition. Um, it's tended to revolve around defense, mm-hmm. um, if not sometimes aggression. And those tend to be very what we call masculinist values. Mm-hmm. And a feminist uh, foreign policy requires, again, to say it requires this sea change, a fundamental shift in thinking to say that we don't have to value those things to be kind of a, a country um, with a successful vision that speaks to different people in different locations mm-hmm. in the globe. And that um, that it, we can deprioritize military, we can mm-hmm. deprioritize the use of power. Um, and we do so by engaging with more cooperative and cosmopolitan practices. Well, this this podcast is about looking forward uh, for what Scotland could be in the future. And I want to come back to what you've been talking about in a few moments about the masculine, the militarisation uh, of policy. But uh, l- let's just start at home here just now. It is a, a, a feminist foreign policy, a continuation of what's already taking place in Scotland? And what have domestic, feminist, people-centric policies already done for Scotland, in your view? Well, I think if you look at the voting behaviour of Scottish Scottish citizens since devolution, we've seen people-centric policies emerge. Um, I first lived in Scotland from 1999 to 2003, right? when there were still tolls to go across the Forth Road Bridge or um, across the Tay Bridge into Dundee, um, right? And those cost money. 
Um, and that meant some people may not have been able to use them, right? Or where we'd go in and pay for prescriptions. Um, and that could, people having to access the care that they need, and it may be being a prohibitive cost, even if it was a small cost, right? That adds up for some, mm-hmm. for some people and for some families. And then moving back uh, to Scotland in 2011, you know, and I went into the pharmacy for the first time and began to hand over my cash or hand over cash for my prescriptions. And they said, no, you don't need that. And I thought, mm. what? And so, you know, even though that's something quite affordable to me, that makes a difference. Yeah. Mm. And not having to pay those tolls makes a difference for people. That makes an economic difference. So I think that's very people centric. Um, the baby box, right? Mm-hmm. And trying yeah. to get all children born in Scotland off on the same footing, mm-hmm. right? And provide them with some of the basic needs that they that they require. Um, and giving young people uh, free bus travel and so forth, all of these types of... Right. Indeed, we've just heard about free dental care as well for the under 26, all those kinds yeah. of policies, yeah. Hugely, hugely important. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, also, you know, free... Um, period products yeah. for girls, right? Mm-hmm. So that we don't have a period tax. I just, those, those are creative um, and they really help people in small but significant ways. Mm-hmm. And and I think it really shows that both the voters and the government have done quite a bit of thinking on how we help and support people in the best way possible. And, and can using these policies help us to I don't know, better understand the rights, equality, uh, and of course, the complex structural problems that exist? I Yes, I think it does. I mean, I think it begins to raise awareness and it begins to really say that, you know, when you go home with a baby box, it begins to enlighten you to what some people might have kind of difficulty facing, right? When we had the conversation over free period products. It made people very aware of those just constraints of, of what people have to do to navigate their surroundings. And so the more that we have these conversations and these this openness about um, how different economic practices and different social practices impact people's lives and make it better mm. we have then a better awareness of a society of yeah. of what we can be together mm-hmm. and i think the same if we were to apply this globally right what does it look like to put an emphasis on cooperation on devolving power in different places around the world um it makes us begin to think about how how different lives are lived right and that not everything looks like the one that we have and, and talking about the lives that we live, we're in quite unusual times. It is now a, a time of post-COVID recovery, a good time to implement feminist foreign policies. And, you know, I'm just thinking the pandemic certainly shown us the importance of investing in care, prevention, resilience, preparedness. Is this a good time to, to look at this? I think it's one of the best times because, again, we have been made aware of how society has to pull together to protect our most vulnerable, right? To make sure that we all have what we need to survive. And that feminism speaks directly to that. And within feminist foreign policy kind of scholarship, there's an idea of the ethics of care, right? And Mm -hmm. that feminists 
really emphasize what is called an ethics of care. And that is making sure that people are, are taken care of, that we provide people um, kind of across the world with what they need to survive. And that we're no longer relying upon maybe an extractive economy, right? Where we go in and yeah. strip resources out of a country. And instead we help them, um, either we don't do the extraction or we help to make sure that the policies that exist prevent that extraction Indeed. Well, we'll be uh, discussing Scotland's ambitions for a well-being economy in a forthcoming uh, podcast. Uh, how can these uh, policies support that particular ambition? I think it's part and parcel. I don't think they can be divorced from one another, right? I, I've made the argument that a well-being um, economy and initiative actually can sit within the umbrella of a feminist foreign policy. Yeah. They make complete sense together. Um, and so they're they're very complementary. Good. We, you mentioned earlier about the masculine militarized kind of view, and I want to come back to that um, just now. Your other area of specialization is on matters related to terrorism. How, how can using a feminist foreign policy uh, offer an alternative to the more traditional masculine, as I said, even militarized mainstream thinking when it comes to matters of security? It, it's a very different way of thinking, and it's not a way of thinking that many people really, I would say, embrace, because I think we've been taught when you deal with terrorism, you go in and you deal with it in a, in a violent way, yeah. right? And it becomes a tit-for-tat scenario, right? They do violence, so we go back and do some violence. And I think what we've learned perhaps with Afghanistan in the past couple of weeks is that that doesn't always work well, yeah. right? And so then what are... and I would also say a tit-for-tat doesn't also recognize that there are reasons why people commit political violence, why mm -hmm. they use terrorism as an activity. I'm never going to agree with the use of that violence, and I'm never going to say that it's moral or just, and I want to make that clear. But I think we do need to understand why people resort to that, and we need to look at and understand those underlying conditions. And I think a feminist foreign policy would ask us to look at those mm -hmm. underlying conditions and so help to solve those help to resolve those and in that way we might resolve the violence that exists hey, could, could you just you know staying with that for a second do you draw any parallels with what's happening internationally just now in, in what you've just described uh, in what way yeah, well obviously you know we've got the situation unfolding in Afghanistan with the the Taliban there just now obviously the complete opposite um, of uh, you know feminist policy um, uh, yeah. there, but you're talking about that the the root causes and understanding uh, these yeah. things. Do you think that you know having a different approach way back in the day, and I'm talking way back in the day, uh, might have uh, you know helped to uh, to create a different environment than the one we're facing at the moment? Yes, actually, I do. I do think we could. I think if we. You know, if there are issues of, I mean, why people use political violence is very complex, right? So I'm not trying to simplify it. Mm -hmm. But I think there are often economic factors, right? If you look at the history of Northern Ireland and how the Catholic community felt very um, deprived and underprivileged, right? They weren't getting access to, the, to education and to housing um, that were needed and necessary. Right, and that led to significant dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the core reasons behind the troubles 
um, and the eruption of the troubles. Um, I think if we look at the post-colonial struggles in the 1950s and 60s, right, and people um, and the in former colonies not feeling like they have access to power, access to economic resources, um, and that as European countries left those um, countries and territories, they didn't leave it uh, in a good state, mm-hmm. right? And so that the more that there can be a, a handover and a transition and a sharing of resources and one that is more equitable, I think, I believe, we'll see less of, of the fighting, less of the violence. I mean, I think we also must, must recognize, going back to that tit-for-tat example, that violence is cyclical. And yeah. the more we respond to violence with violence, we'll see it erupt again. So a, an example that I often go into is um, how Sri Lanka ended its civil war against the liberation tigers of Tamil Alam, right? That we talk about Sri Lanka as if it's solved and then that that violence is resolved. Well, it resolved in what some call a genocide, and the predictions are is that that violence will re-erupt mm-hmm. and quite possibly within the next decade, right? That that to end something with violence doesn't mean it's ended. It just means that there are people who don't have the resources to fight back yet. Mm-hmm. And And so I think you have to do a huge amount of work um, in a society to bring about peace and it's not easy and it is often not achieved through military means Mm -hmm. and that we have to look at other legal socioeconomic pathways to bring about peace in countries and that a response to terrorism is a good response to terrorism i don't think is often one about violence i think it's often one about looking at the the legal system the socioeconomic system and really trying to address what is lacking or missing there. And I suppose the the really good European example of what you're talking about is the impoverishment of Germany after the First World War. And uh, what what escalated from there into uh, creating the conditions for the Second World War. So yeah, that cyclical um, effect. Okay, well, let's bring it back to home and also, you know, about the future of Scotland. Can a feminist foreign policy help an independent Scotland to take the lead globally with uh, greater empathy and open-mindedness? I think absolutely. I think for the first time in what, nearly thir- in 30 years, 40 years, we have a possibility of seeing a brand new state emerge in in, in Northern Europe. Um, and it's it, it gets to remake itself, right? It gets to reinvent itself. Yeah. And in some ways in doing so, it can reinvent what a state is supposed to be about, Mm -hmm. right? And in international relations currently, we think states must be kind of um, creatures with heavy military expenditures and a strong kind of often military presence. And one, that's really expensive. And I'm not sure that the Scottish voters have shown that's where they want to put their money. Um, And two, it then really defines yourself to your neighbors. And I'm not sure that's how we really want to define ourselves. Mm -hmm. And instead, I think to say we want a feminist foreign policy, again, that emphasizes collaboration and cosmopolitan vision helps to actually continue to position us within the EU circle and within the EU paradigm. Mm -hmm. And it then also frees up resources internally, where if we're not spending it on 
military or a lot of military expenditure, then what can we spend it on? And I think that's to continue to prioritize what we already do, mm-hmm. right? Health and, and human services that we embrace as a society. One of the big arguments we have, which is uh, with Westminster, which is backed up with uh, the opinion polls from the public and also the, uh, the the stated view of the politics in Scotland is the uh, objection to money being spent on weapons of mass destruction or nuclear weapons. I suppose that's yeah. a good example of where you'd make completely different policy choices and a really obvious one for us to, to, to look at there in terms of a you know a different choice and a feminist approach. Absolutely. Hugely costly. Hugely costly, right? And I think it's ironic, but Eisenhower has a really good quote. If you Google it, I don't know it off the top of my head fully, but where he says every, you know, dollar spent on nuclear weaponry um, is a dollar not spent on children. Mm -hmm. Um, That's it in a nutshell. And I think, yes, that's absolutely it. It's incredibly expensive. So uh, why will a feminist foreign policy foster more effective humanitarian responses and greater resilience? And can it help in hitting the sustainable development goals? Well, one, I mean, again, I think all of those work within a feminist foreign policy umbrella and paradigm, right? That if we're emphasizing human security, which emphasizes sustainability, then that helps us achieve those goals in a more coherent fashion. And I think if we're emphasizing care, then that's emphasizing humanitarian responsibility. And I think there are multiple ways that we can go about doing that. And I think that will be the subject of longer debates. How exactly do we model kind of a humanitarian vision? But all of that is about saying together, we are all part of the humanity that exists on this planet that has to learn to share this planet and, and not continue to harm this planet. And that to me is deeply feminist. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, it's been fascinating to talk to you today about uh, this subject. Can I thank you very much indeed for taking part in the Scotland's Choice podcast? Oh no, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So there we have it. An independent Scotland could take a very different path to the failing direction of Westminster on foreign policy. Mm-hmm and could easily become a force for positive international engagement. My thanks once again to Professor Karen Gentry. My thanks also to you for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.